0: The Fourth Wall, Episode 17, Javier Grillo-Marxwatch, Jeffrey Addis, and Will Matthews. You're listening to The Fourth Wall, a podcast that takes you beyond the screen or the page and brings you into our conversations with the creative people behind your favorite movies, TV shows, comics, and more. My name is Michael R. I'm the podcast editor here at Den of Geek, and today we're talking to three executive producers from Netflix's The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance, Javier Grillo-Marxwatch, Jeffrey Addis, and Will Matthews. And if you're not familiar with The Dark Crystal, it was a movie back in 1982, and now they're making a TV series out of it, a prequel of sorts, and it's just wonderful. It dropped on August 30th, the same day this podcast is dropping, actually. And if you haven't binged it yet, definitely put it on your watch list as soon as possible, especially if you're a big fan of Jim Henson Company puppeteering, because it's just one of those stories that you can get completely lost in. And it really takes the rich world building that came from the original film and takes it to a whole new level with today's technology, but also, you know, some of the charm that can only be achieved with puppeteers operating the characters that we love. So... It really was a fun time talking to the two creators, Jeffrey Addis and Will Matthews, and Javier Gurula-Marchwatch, who is a famed showrunner from Lost, about this show and how it got developed and what we can expect if you haven't seen the show yet. Now, this is completely spoiler-free, and it really is a good way to get enticed for this 10-episode season one. So here's our conversation with the executive producers of The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. Well, thanks for joining me, guys. You know, I, I did hear that this was originally pitched as an animated project. So what else can you tell us about the development of this project and your personal connection to the Dark Crystal story?
1: You know, uh, this is hobbies. You know, the, the film came out 37 years ago, and the Henson Company has continued it in one way or another since then. Uh, there have been comic books. There have been further books. There's been a series of YA novels. There have been a creation myths series that came out. So... This is something that has been in some form of development for a long time, and it's not just one animated project. There's been a couple of different animated iterations of it, the last one of which was at Netflix. And Netflix, seeing that material, came to the conclusion that one of the big things about The Dark Crystal, probably the biggest thing, is that it is done with Creatures from the Jim Henson Creature Shop. So why not make the series with Creatures from the Jim Henson Creature Shop And that was the kind of moment that changed everything for for this project because that was the moment when it went into a realm of things that had never been tried before, Uh, like making a 10-hour dramatic series uh, starring entirely creatures, you know, from the Jim Henson Creature Shop. And that's when Jeff and Will came in. They had actually called the Jim Henson Company, um, hoping to pitch Labyrinth 2, and instead were pitched, why don't you come in and pitch Dark Crystal, which they did. And they sort of were—they were the guys who put together all of these elements that were out there before into the show that you're seeing now. And then my involvement in it came after, after they had written the script, and uh, Netflix actually uh, paid some money for Louis Leterrier and the guys to uh, to put together a test reel, and the show got greenlit. Then I came in uh, because I have some expertise, you know, sort of running writers' rooms and things like that, and uh, doing some world building and so forth. So the three of us became partners in, in the writing of this thing.
0: And Jeff, were you already deep in with the Dark Crystal mythology before you started doing this?
2: Oh, this is Jeff. Yes. I was very deep. I mean, I was the kid who owned every burned through several VHSs. Uh, had the making of had every making of, you know, Jim Henson's of Muppets and Men in the works, every book, everything that you could imagine. I used to draw Mystics and Skeksis in all of the margins. I fancied myself an artist. I still start with the eyes because that's what Brian Froud said to do in the first documentary, <laughs> start with the eyes. And so I was a huge, huge fan. Uh, Will certainly loved it. And it is, he's here now, by the way. Hello! And it had scared him quite a bit as a child. Uh, but he picked up a lot of that information along the way. So it was nice that we had two points of view on it. I grew up with it and Will came to it a little bit. Later, and so we were able to nice balance when you're figuring it out and I remember the moment he corrected me for the first time, and uh, I did not like that
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say javier you're you're no stranger to science fiction and fantasy storytelling. What was the writer's room like for this project like did you have fun coming up with, for example, the origin of the scientist's mechanical eye and stuff like that?
1: oh yeah <laughs> you know um. There wasn't a day working on the show that wasn't a complete pleasure. It literally, we were dumbstruck every day that we came to work that we were allowed to do this and that we were allowed to do this on this level and at this price point. I saw The Dark Crystal when it came out in 1982. It was a seminal part of my becoming a fan of genre and of my wanting to be a filmmaker. And, you know, one of the things that I think most about when I think of The Dark Crystal Writers' Room, in addition to collaboration friendship and kinship and and like-mindedness is that uh, the Jim Henson Company put a uh, picture, a framed picture of Jim Henson, Frank Oz, and Gary Kurtz on the set of the original uh, in the writers room. And every day I would come in and I would look at these three men who are gods to me and think of how fortunate and grateful I was to be able to tread on the same ground. And so, so honestly, when you look at the Dark Crystal, you're looking at a show made by true believers. This is a show made by people who love the original, who love this world, and who wanted nothing more than to do honor to Jim Henson's legacy. And I think you see that in the writer's film.
0: Well, I have to uh, ask, because you mentioned the the legacy that this show has, and part of that is the Froud family and their amazing design skills. How did their legacy help make this TV version of Dark Crystal that much more special?
2: This is Jeff. Well, literally, they... Worked on. So, uh, so Brian was creating uh, artwork for the for the show and designing things. Uh, Their son uh, Toby was the head creature uh, supervisor. He was in design. Design, yeah. And so, and then Wendy was also on set and building things. So it was a family affair. Um, It was actually really amazing to get to watch. Uh, Toby worked with his father and worked with his mother to see the affection that they have, to see them working together to create these things. So, you have Brian doing this amazing, amazing artwork. He's on set, he's coming up with ideas, he's contributing to the story as well because he created this world. And if he says something, you sh- should listen because he knows it pretty well. Wendy is amazing and worked on the original film and also worked on this show. And I remember one day she just took pieces. We needed some more critters for the forest. And so she just took bits of things, things that were in the garbage, things that pieces of material, uh, uh, heads, foam from other things, and just created this whole wealth of new creatures that are in the show, that you can see in the show. She's amazing. She made the wing covers for a lot of the – she realized the female Gelfoings didn't have wing covers, and so she just went into her workshop and made these beautiful covers. And so it really was a family – it was really incredible.
1: Well, uh, this is hobby again. In terms of the family of it, you're not just talking about the Frout family, you're also talking about the Henson family, and by the Henson family there's also an extended Henson family, which is that there were puppeteers who worked on the TV show who worked on the original. There were puppet fabricators who worked on the original who worked on the TV show. There were people in wardrobe and, and in design who worked on the original. So this project isn't just something that manifested or, or that was assigned to us. This is a project that a lot of the people who worked on had deep, deep, almost, you know, in some cases, familial connections to the original material. You're seeing the continuation of an artistic tradition, not the sort of picking up of it randomly uh, for profit, you know?
0: Yeah, that's good to know. <laughs> and speaking of the original movie, like, you don't have to have watched it, obviously, to see this TV show. But because that original movie depicts the last of the Gelflings, the resistance that's referred to in this prequel title is kind of doomed to fail. Does does the TV series have its own victories to kind of temper that knowledge that we have?
2: When we pitched the show to Netflix, we pitched an ending. We have an answer to this, and we don't want to give it away. <laughs> yeah. uh, we don't even really want to hint at it. But Thrall is a big world, and there's a lot of space for hope in that world. And so we hope that people will come to the show with an open mind and enjoy the journey, but maybe it's not quite the ending you think it is
3: in the opening this is will by the way hello hi in uh, <laughs> in the opening of the original the master says to jen there's more to the story than you know and you know we ran with that <laughs> <laughs> there is more to the story than you know <laughs> well, i guess in
0: that sense too there's many many trying between the two eras <laughs> when you say yeah to use the uh, show terminology <laughs>
2: word trine, by the way. Well done. Um, uh, a word that was invented after the movie. The word trine appears nowhere in the movie. Um, hey, the word ewop is in Return
3: of the Jedi. Exactly. <laughs> I can't believe that's true. Every true. time you say that, I can't believe that's <laughs>
2: true. Uh, but yes, there are many a trine and many a strange way. And many a to <laughs>
3: tell.
0: So as the, as the Gelflings are rallied to stop the Skeksis in this series, we're following three characters for the most part. Rianne, Brea and Deet. What can you tease about their introductions just for our audience?
3: Well, the reason we have three leads is because three is a big number in Thra. We realized early on, we had three mysteries that needed solving. And so we thought, give them each a lead character to follow that storyline. So you see at the beginning, three very different Gelfling in very different places worried about three very different things and then one of the themes of the show is that the many become one and so you'll see those storylines come together, those characters come together, and those problems come together for one solution.
2: We also thought of it as we needed to ease people into this world. We needed to help the audience to understand the world that they were walking into. So one of the things that we all talked about was Each of our leads would represent a different place within the structure of the Gelfling and their relationship to the Skeksis. So we have Brea, who's a princess. She's at the top. We have Rian, who works as a guard at the Castle of the Crystal. He is a company man. He is a believer in the structure, in this system. And then you have Dee, who's from a clan that lives deep under the ground that's almost forgotten. And so she's coming into Thra and coming up into the light and becoming the audience's eyes, in a lot of ways, into this world. So we thought of it as tackling it from three different angles.
3: Yeah, you could look at it as questioning what is, fully supporting what is, and learning what is.
0: Oh, I like that, yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about the voice talent, because it's very interesting that the Skeksis' voices... Uh, aside from maybe Mark Hamill, who always does uh, those kind of voices in his work, you got Jason Isaacs, Simon Pegg, aquafina almost unrecognizable in a very impressive way. But we hear that their voiceover work is a little different from traditional animation in terms of who's lip syncing whom. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yes is different because we had already shot it. So traditionally in animation, you go in and you record before they animate, and then they animate to your performance. In our case, we shot it all live with the puppeteers doing it, and then we go into a studio with the voice talent, and they have to match what the puppeteers did. Now, they don't have to match the performance perfectly. If there's a different element or shade that they want to bring to that scene or that character, they can do that. In fact, they they did all the time, but they had to match the rhythms. They had to find their way to bring their performance and the performance of the puppeteer together, which is very tricky. So you could see in the beginning when the voice actors would come in, and these are some of the most talented actors in the world, and they would look at it and go, oh, no, because they would realize that they had to match. They understood. We warned them, but it's until you see it. It's hard to understand. One of the voice actors literally turned and said, but you shot it all. And And they were like, yes. And so they would have to find their way into the performance following the rhythms of the puppeteer. And at first it's difficult, but these are phenomenally talented, and they would find their rhythm and their way of doing it. And we would work together with them, and Louis was in all those sessions, and I was in those sessions, and we would would come to it together. But it was really amazing to watch. I mean, we really got some of the finest actors in the world and then made them unrecognizable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess that's part of the fun but you, we lucked out Karen was the first to sign up and Karen coming on board really was a signal to the professional entertainment industry that this was a, a product worth looking at and something interesting and then also the, na- the Henson name people all have their own emotional connections to the Jim Henson Company to this property to the Dark Crystal and so getting them on board was amazing I remember Simon Pegg we were doing it, and I was like look we 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 need to do a couple of uh I need a bunch of booms today and he was like, I'm never mind, I'll do as many as you want and so we did I tested that theory, and we did a lot, and he loved doing every one of them, and everyone was different uh because Simon is a phenomenal actor.
0: <laughs> well, you mentioned Louis Leterrier is on the set for that as well. That must be really challenging to do the directing." for a puppet performance anyway, but then on top of that, to sit in a studio, that's amazing.
1: One of the things that, so Louis, um, you know, Louis is a phenomenal director and an even better human being. And one of the things that Louis brought to this project uh, was a real sense of change from how the the original was directed. Uh, If you look at the original, it's a pretty pastoral piece of work. Jim Henson describes it as a painting, you know, and it has a lot of sort of long takes. The camera doesn't do a lot of motion. It really is about presenting with this very painterly reality, whereas Louis really came at it from a sense of wanting to put you in the middle of Gelfling civilization and make you feel like you're one of them. And, you know, he shot three cameras per setup, and a lot of the time that third camera was a steady cam that he operated himself. Um, and the puppeteers weren't used to being directed this way, used to being shot this way. Because a lot of what you try to do is hide the puppeteers, but with Louis' camera was in motion so much that a lot of the times it'll cut away before you, know, before you see anything you're not supposed to or any of those sorts of things. So one of Louis' big contributions to this thing is a visual dynamic that you haven't seen in this kind of material before. So it wasn't just about directing puppets and puppeteers. Louis really came in to try to revolutionize the way that material with puppets is shot.
0: That's amazing. (laughs) Well, can you describe, uh, I hate to destroy the mystique in a a way, but how do you get the long shots? And of course there must be some visual effects, uh, with some of that, but you, you clearly don't have the puppeteers in every shot. Is there a mixture of live action full size versions of the Gelfling? How's that all done? Uh,
2: the answer is that it's different on every shot. Pretty much every shot that you could look at is using a different trick. So a lot of the times it's shooting puppets in front of green screens with puppeteers and then comping in those elements. A lot of times it's a combination of live action with some CGI in there. Louis used, he said, every shot is a magic trick. And every shot is a magic trick. Every shot is doing something slightly different. And we had d doing our, our CGI, who's amazing, and amazing puppeteers, but... The answer is it took a lot of planning. Everything had to be planned out in advance. Everything had to be thought about because everything is a different rig for the puppet, and everything is a different trick that they're using uh, on the camera and on the, the post-production side of it.
1: And there are there are different iterations of each character. You know, so you will have, for example. If the Skeksis are walking, you have body performers who are inside the puppets. If they're sitting, then you've got a performer who's only putting his hand inside of the puppet from a different operating position. So the puppets have an extraordinary amount of things that they do and don't do, and there's an, a number of puppets for different applications depending on what the what's on screen and
2: how their rig yeah.
1: changes. The thing the thing that the thing that I think is really exciting about this project, you know, a lot is being made about puppets versus CGI and we treated the puppets like actors. So there, there are some CGI stunt doubles in, in the show, and there's also some of the larger creatures are CGI because they needed to be rendered with CGI to make them the, the size they are. But really, you're looking at these puppets the way that you would look at the actors in Game of Thrones. And what's amazing about how the show was made, first of all, the show was made entirely indoors. There's no location shooting in it. Everything in it was built, and the integration of puppetry with things like set extension, compositing, uh, and even animation uh, is is extraordinary. So the real magic here isn't because we didn't use one technology in favor of the other. The real magic in this version of The Dark Crystal is that Louis and the entire crew was able to so seamlessly blend so many different types of, of effects and and, for lack of a better word, magic.
2: But I would challenge you that if we went through the show, things that you think... Might only be done with CGI were done in camera with puppets.
0: Yeah, that's just amazing to me.
3: Oh, yeah, that's true. The show always tricks me. This is Will. I worked on it. I don't know what the <laughs> hell CGI was real. And when I guess, Jeff tells me I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what these people do is incredible.
0: I believe it. As a big fan of Farscape and puppets in that show, I have to say, <laughs> I love Farscape. there's no way of replacing that. That particular feel and look. So, yeah. Big fan here. So, I, I appreciate you guys talking to us about uh, Dark Crystal. I'm really looking forward to the premiere.
1: Oh, it's yeah. a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, thank for, you, so thank much. you for having thank us. You for taking the
0: time. All right. I think we gained a lot of great insight about the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. This is just one of those shows that is really something special. It got a five star review on Den of Geek, and it is well deserved. So, It's one of those fantasy series that I think will capture everyone's hearts, even people who maybe aren't necessarily a fan of that type of show. Give it a try because it's very unique, extremely artistic, and just visually stunning. So definitely give it a try, and uh, we hope you enjoyed our conversation with the executive producers. But that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Come back in two weeks for the next edition of the podcast when we'll break through the fourth wall once again to talk to another creator or performer behind the entertainment that you love. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. My name is Michael R. And you can follow me at Mike Sci-Fi. Find more content at denofgeek.com and thanks for listening. Join us again next time, Beyond the Fourth Wall.